back in memories and we start to talk about people or events. We're telling stories. Stories are not always fiction and do not need to be fiction. Stories are often factual. But the beautiful thing about story is that you can tell fact in formats that reach different audiences. And that's the power of story. And that is what the Bible begins with. Um, is it wants to let us know that we have a story on our hands and that this is communicating facts in a story format. In Genesis 1 verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is very conscious of the fact that it's a beginning. And we read about this creation and we go through book after book of scripture and we get to revelation and the curtain falls and it has a definite conclusion. And it's very, very interesting that Genesis, the curtain goes up. Here's the beginning. And this is how it all began. And in revelation, the curtain goes down and it's a happy ending. There's a marriage at the end, which by the way is um, the definition of a classic comic story is that it ends with a marriage, that there's a happy ending. And so many of our fairy tales, which are fiction, they do end in weddings and in a happily ever after type of format. And scripture says, yes, those fairy tales are pointing to something that is true. They are fictional stories, but they're reaching beyond the fiction and pointing to something factual in our universe, which is that there is something wrong. It had a beginning. It went off course, but there will be a wedding at the end where humans and God are once again united. So... The story of our scriptures take us through the creation. They tell us who we are, why we're here, what we're meant to be doing. We're going to see the conflict in a rebellion. As we know, through Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. Everything goes south. And then there is a long, long series of words and books which show us how God is bringing it all back together through restoration. So that is why we talk about the story of scripture. This is not just an interesting way to see scripture. This is a vital way to build our lives and to know our mission and purpose on earth. And that's why we're doing this. So the creation is what we're looking at. Now, let me tell you up front and then we'll look at it. What Genesis and the creation section of scripture teach us. They teach us the, this. God is a king Creation is his kingdom, and we humans are his under kings. God is a king, creation is his kingdom, and we humans are his under kings. That is what Moses tells us through this creation narrative, or if you will allow me to say, this factual creation story. And Moses, as good storytellers do, frames the facts in such a way that he is intending to point out the flaws in other philosophies around him. Namely, maybe primarily, Egyptian mythologies and Babylonian mythologies, two of the world powers of the time. So, that's what we will expect to see. So let's go ahead and look at the creation. And we're going to look again and see that God is a king, creation is his kingdom, and we humans are his under kings. Genesis 1 verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And the light didn't like what he said. And the darkness invaded and tried to prohibit what happened. And the two fought it out. And eventually the light prevailed and we had light. Oh, no, that's how the Babylonian story would read. But see what Moses does here. Very suddenly, very cooperatively, with full obedience, with no resistance, God speaks and light says, yes, sir. And there's light. This is the pattern we see through the six days. There is never once a moment of conflict or of tension or of argument or of God's got to get his way and roll up his sleeves and say, come on, creation, listen up now. There is none of that. Very deliberate, very sublime, very powerful. We have, we have God speaking and this new created matter responding. And so what we see immediately is a very ancient picture, which we as Americans miss because we aren't part of a monarchical, is that the right word? A monarchical society. We don't experience anymore the power of a king speaking and the immediacy of its subjects responding. We don't experience that. We only know of it in thought. But this is what is being painted for us, is we are being introduced in the beginning to our God. Who is our God? Well, he is a king. In the narrative, in the story of scripture, God is a king who is over everything. Creation's his kingdom. He owns it. He controls it. He has authority. And nothing is even willing to rebel against him. At least yet. So how does he do the creation? We don't see God copulating with other gods or other powers and making things that way. We don't see him intruding and fighting violently and saying, I'm going to get my way like it or not. We see him speaking and we see obedience. Only one kind of person in any story owns that power and it's a king. Kings speak, the subjects obey. Again, that's what... um, We're seeing in Genesis. Now, it is wise for all to live this way. The creation which responds to the king's word is very good at responding appropriately, except for the humanity part. We seem to be the only ones who think that we have a choice in the matter and that it's optional to obey our king, which is why we will see next week in Genesis 3, the next movement of the story is rebellion. Yes, that is a fancy word for sin in the fall, but rebellion appropriately paints what is happening. We have a king who speaks and we have creatures who say we would rather follow a different king. And that's what happens when the kingdom does not do what a king's word says is it's called rebellion or treachery. And usually death is the solution when subjects rebel against the king. But we will get there next week. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. So here God is. And we see that in this creation account, he enters into the scene. Now, 
there's been a lot of confusion over the years over this. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created them to the earth. And then verse 2, we see that the earth wasn't very good. It had no form. It was empty. It was dark. It was just water. Hmm. What happened? People surmised Satan fell and ruined everything and God started over. There's all kinds of ideas about what's going on here. Did God just create this yuckiness and then decided to assemble it? Most likely what we have is a title in verse 1. That here, we're introducing now, this is, this is the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Let's now enter into it. So if you're a movie person, it would be like a movie title. God created the heavens and the earth. And then the scene opens, or the curtain opens, if it's more of a drama. And now what we see first is verse 2. There is, ev- there is evidence of this in ancient writings. Back when they wrote on clay tablets, uh, it was very heavy and costly, and you would want to minimize the amount of tablets you had to write on. And so titles were often put as the first words in a rambling uh, line of script. And so if they were to say something like uh, the decree of the king, that would just be right there. The decree of the king. The king says. And so if Moses and if the words that came to our page came from this sort of a format from tablets, Moses would simply have put, I'm about to tell you about the creation of the world. And verse two is where he's now beginning to tell you about it. So there is some evidence that that is possibly what's happening, and it erases a lot of confusion between the relationships of these verses. And so what happens is the story that Scripture is communicating doesn't give us much of a beginning other than it wasn't perfect until God began to speak. Now, that might be frustrating for us. Where did the water come from? Why was it dark and empty and void? The point isn't, where did it come from? The point is that it was, and that God transforms it. And I think the point for this, Paul picks up on when he writes in 2 Corinthians, and he says, the God who spoke light into darkness speaks light into our hearts. And Paul was picking up on something. And a few verses later, he says, therefore, in Christ, you're a new creation. I think he was picking up on the fact that Genesis is really at the very beginning here, the gospel. That all of us are launched into the story as Genesis 1 verse 2. We are launched into this world formless and empty and dark. We are not good. But when a man decides or a woman chooses to say, you are my king, God, and I will obey your word as the creation obeyed his word. We then become from void and empty and dark to formed and filled and light. And we become a new creation. He makes us something out of our miserable situation. And this is part of what the story tells us right away, is that this is our God. He is a king who has absolute authority to make what is evil good, what is bad right. And so we see God go into each day, and he begins to command more and more, and it obeys immediately. And we find that what began as not perfect in verse 2 ends perfectly in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In other words, he was pleased, and his job was done. It was good. 
This is the God we are introduced to at the very beginning. He is a king. What about the world we're introduced to? Creation. It is his kingdom. The creation becomes the setting for the drama. It becomes the stage. The creation hosts our king's kingdom. It is all to happen here. He wanted a physical kingdom. He wanted something on an earth where humans can interact with the creation and with himself. And this was the original plan to launch his kingdom on the earth through the creation in and with it. And interestingly, we do see in Revelation that at the end when the creator when the kingdom is all fixed, it is on an earth and he does mingle it with a city. It's a garden city that we see at the end. And so we're going to look at the creation here, this kingdom of his, and what it is all about. So we get more of a picture of what he made in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 gives us the overview of the creation. Genesis 2 now goes back to the beginning and zooms in a little bit more specifically on the humans and uh, the actual geography that God created. So in Genesis 2, we're going to look at the Garden of Eden. This is part of his creation. Now, if you will, look with me at 2 verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it flowed and became four rivers. So there's a place called Eden, which means delight. There is a thing that is called a garden which in the Hebrew refers to an enclosed national forest kind of a thing, not a vegetable garden that some people may tend in their backyard, but a magnificent created garden, uh, something big like a forest. But it, it does in the Hebrew, it refers to something that's enclosed. It has its limits. So there's an Eden, there's a place of delight, there is a garden. And then beyond that, uh, from this, there are four rivers that go outward. And the next verses describe these rivers to us. It is interesting when we also look at Ezekiel chapter 28, that we have a further description of Eden. And there in Ezekiel 28, we are told that Eden was the mountain of God. So we're beginning to see something very interesting. There's a garden that has boundaries. There's an Eden, which is actually separate from the garden. We call it the garden of Eden. Yes, they were near each other, but Eden was a separate thing than the garden. The garden was around Eden. The river came out of Eden to water the garden. And then outside of the garden, this river goes into four points. Presumably the idea as, uh, would be that it's going to the four quote corners of the world, right? It's going outward so that in a way we have now this Edenic mountain as the center of the world. It's surrounded by a garden and its rivers go outward past the garden to the rest of the world. So there is this structure, if you will allow it, um, there's this threefold structure in which we have a middle and an outer ring, and then an outer ring from that. 
And it may not be coincidental that Moses, who writes this, also wrote the passages about the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to make. And he commanded them to make it the same way, that there would be a center with a holy of holies where God dwelt. There would be a holy place outside of that where the priests did their work. And then there would be the outer courts where the people could come and worship God. Eden was the place where God lived. We find out later that Adam and Eve had a relationship with God in Eden, that this was his dwelling place, that of all the creation, he lived on this mountain on Eden and that the garden was surrounding it because this was beautiful and this was for man and that there's something outside of that. And it's very possible that we have here the beginnings of a temple structure. We have a holy of holies in Eden. We have a holy place in the garden and we have the outer courts in that which is beyond the garden. To further support the idea, there are stones in this garden, certain stones and beyond verse 11 uh, verse 12 we see that there is gold bdellium and onyx stone and not surprisingly these are the very stones you find in the temple two of them on the breastplate of the high priest in the new jerusalem these are the foundation stones of the city which is also the dwelling place of god We find out later in chapter 3, verse 8, that God walks in this place. He walks in it. Not only does he live there, he walks through it. Leviticus and Deuteronomy tell us that God walked in the camp of Israel because that was his place. It was where he lived. In chapter 1, verse 26, we're told that uh, God made man in his image We're going to talk about that in a minute. But for now, what we need to know is that what kings would often do when they conquered a land is they would, when kings would go invade a land and conquer it and claim it as their own, they would do two things right off the bat. They would build a temple on the new land to dedicate it to their God, basically by the power of this God I worship, I now claim this land for him. Uh, So they would build a temple and then they would follow that with a statue of themselves. Why a statue of themselves? So that the newly subdued inhabitants would know who their king is. And you guys, um, I tried to explain this to a a younger audience once, and they didn't seem to track as much uh, because they were babies then. But we, and I mean, I'm in this older section now that I realize after 9-11, when we saw America go into Iraq, And one of the things I remember being big news was after we'd finally gained a foothold in, um, I think it was Baghdad. I don't remember which city it was, but, uh, there were, there were the pictures and the video of the people pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein, right? Do you, does anybody remember seeing that? And that was very clear what they meant by doing that. He's not our King anymore. We don't follow this guy. And so that's the idea of having God's image made on the earth is God has, if, if, if the world has become his and he's made it and he's a king, he's saying, all right, let's get right to work. My kingdom needs a temple. Let's call it Eden. And it needs a statue to remind the creation who's in charge around here. So we become his representatives of his royalty. Then we see, uh, this idea of rest in chapter two, the seventh day of creation, 
We see that in chapter 2, verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. He rested. And of course, I remember being a kid in Sunday school and watching my Sunday school teacher squirm awkwardly and try to explain, oh no, God wasn't tired. I don't, I don't know how to explain it to you, but he rested, but he wasn't tired. And, you know, as kids, you're thinking like, well, that means, you know, I'm sleeping in or something. Um, it was funny back then, uh, but I see now more why that would have been difficult to explain. And let me let me put it this way. Uh, I'm going to use two sources, one from the Bible and one outside the Bible, so that you know that this is definitely the dominant way of thinking when Moses wrote this. Rest has nothing to do with just kicking back, but it has everything to do with moving in and taking possession of. So... The outside Bible example would be the story of the Babylon creation, which I told you when Marduk had the gods build him a house, the actual text, the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian text. It actually says that Marduk rested in this house. It was, it was the old way of saying he moved in and ruled from there. And then in the Bible, to make it even more interesting, Psalm chapter 132 twice tells us that God rested on Mount Zion where the temple of where his temple was that that was his resting place Isaiah 66 as well uh, God poses where is my resting place that's what it means is it it means they're looking for a place to inhabit to move in and to rule from there and temples in the ancient times were always a god's resting place and so when it says that god rested it doesn't just mean all done for now i'm going to take a nap but it means that for six days god made something his kingdom and on the seventh day he moved in and by moving in the kingdom became a temple because the God is there and he dwells there. So what we have is this temple palace and that's the land that we're looking at. That's what the creation that he made is. It's his kingdom and it's also it's where he rules from, but it's also where he lives. And because he moves in, all of it is holy and he called it good. This is his house. This is where he lives. And to kick it all off. This is sort of segueing now into our third part, the part about us. Aren't we so egocentric? <laughs> to, uh, to, to finish it all off, in chapter 2, verse 15, we have a very interesting description of humans. 2.15 says, God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew words for work and keep are never used together except in two more places. They're both in numbers, numbers three, verse seven and numbers eight, verse 25. In those two passages, the two Hebrew words for work and keep show up together. (laughs) The only time these two words are ever used uh, to show you the examples from numbers, it's only used to describe the duties of priests in the temple. Work and keep is what Numbers is telling us. That's what the priest did in the temple. 
And so we understand the meaning here by comparing Moses's later use of the words in numbers. And we say, interesting. So the man is put in this garden of Eden, which we have seen pretty good evidence is God's temple. And now they're told to do duties, which he will later ascribe to actual priests in his temple. It seems to me that the humans were put on the earth to be his priests and priestesses in his temple. So that's our view. We've seen our God. He's a king who has made now the creation, which is his kingdom, which he's moved into. It's his home. It's holy. It's sacred. And now we move finally to us. And I think you're going to see how most of this comes together. Uh, so we've seen who our God is. We've seen who, what his creation is. Now, what are we? Why are we here? What does the story tell us about ourselves? It actually tells us a lot. We don't just read the Bible and say, well, I'm mean, I'm egocentric, and man is usually like that, and women, humanity, so we're going to look for ourselves. Where are we? We're not just doing that here. Uh, the creation here actually wants us to believe we are a big deal. It wants us to believe we're a big deal. And it wants to tell us why we're a big deal. This isn't just haphazardly saying, well, just so you know that evolution isn't true, God made everything and he made man too. No monkeys involved. That isn't the point here, although that's true. The point is God made all of this as a preface to say he made you and I for a mission. So now we're going to see what this passage is actually really if you will, all about, not to say none of the other stuff is important, but this is the climax of the creation story. This is the climax. How do we know the creation of humans is the climax? How do we know? We know it by several ways. First and probably most telling is the length and time it takes to explain day six. I don't know if you noticed this before. But I want you to put, just visualize alone, without counting words, just visualize from verse 1 1 to day 6, which is at 124. So look at how long that is in your Bible, from 1 1 to 124. Now look at from 124 to 131, the end. That's day 6 from 24 on. Do you see how long that is? It is roughly the same size as everything that preceded it. Day six is big because the way ancient writers would do this, especially when you're writing on clay tablets and, and later on on parchment, all things that are very expensive and you didn't want to waste space. The way you said something was important is you wasted space. Because the readers would say, why is he dabbling on and on about that? So the story is going very fast through five days. And on day six, it slows down. And God has something to say. And the reader says, whoa, let me slow down too. This is big. Now, there are word counts that show you this too. But I think to save time, you can just see that it's significantly longer. Just, yeah. Um, Another reason we know this is the climax is the word create. One of the most important words in this story here. It's used of its six uses in the chapter. Three of them are used in one verse 27 alone. So half of the words of create are right there. Talking about the making of man. Um, We know third that this is a big deal. This is a climax because again in 127 poetry is used. This is the first poem in the Bible. And so to God what's happening this is beautiful. Fourth. 
For the first time, God takes counsel in the creating process. 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us? The first mention of us in the whole narrative. Let us. So suddenly God's very independently working, working, working. But when man and woman come on the issue, he says, hmm. Listen, heaven, come around me. This is a big deal. I want all of you to watch this. What do you guys think about this? What do you, there's a council. There's an us involved. Now, we can get into, of course, is the us the Trinity? Uh, the Hebrews believe in a plurality of majesty. There's so many explanations for what this us is. But what's important for us right now is that it speaks of a very different tone that's about to take place. And then finally... We know that humans are the climax of all of this because in 128, for the first time, God speaks directly and blesses directly the creation. He spoke once about it, let it be fruitful, multiply, but this time he speaks to the humans, you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God has a special relationship with humans that he doesn't share necessarily with the other five days of creation. So I think it's clear that this is the crown. This is the climax. Who are we and why are we here? It's also important to see that in the Babylonian story of creation, we were an afterthought. The God said, well, everything's handy and dandy, except we're lazy. What can we do about that? And we were made. (laughs) But here it seems that we were the intended target from the beginning. That God didn't say, oh, there's a great creation. Who's going to take care of it? Who's going to take care of me? Oh, man, let's make him. Nope. God was looking forward to man and saying, let's make a home for him so that we can immediately put him into a place that takes care of his needs. See, God is inviting man into his story. The Babylonians, well... They were enslaving man in their story. And we see already the beginnings, especially highlighted when you compare this to what other pagan cultures were teaching. We see the beginnings of grace early on in the Bible. That God from the beginning wanted to give freely to his humans and wanted to care for them. But most importantly, the, true, uh, the, the, the teaching now about who we are and why we're here is made very clear in this part about the image of God. So let's read it. 126. So who are we? 126. God said, let us make man in our image. And of course, I think you guys know that that, that's a word for humanity in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, So let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds, of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the poem says God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And then he blessed them and he said to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. And then God goes on to explain, I've given you every plant yielding seed. You may have every tree for food. And he's basically explaining to them that they have authority. 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So again, my upbringing with Sunday school and stuff, let's make man in our image and the, all the fun. And I'm sure the teachers just had fun letting the kids think and talk. But, you know, so does God have arms like me and a nose like me? Our image, right? Uh, so we look like God. And it could lend you to thinking that when it says after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Like, okay, so we don't really know what it's talking about. Um, we've heard that it means we have the capacity to love. I think Pastor Chuck taught that it means we have the capacity for free will. Uh, it does mean a lot of different things, right? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things included in what it means to be made in the image of God. But the most clear is right here in the text itself. It actually explains itself if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. But let's, before I get to this, uh, let's talk about the three implications that being made in the image of God mean for us. We already know two of them, so I just want to touch on those, and then we'll get to the third that you don't know yet. The two we already know is, first, that we have a unique relationship with God. Made in His image, there is a unique relationship that humans have with the Creator, with the King. We're not just subjects of a kingdom. We have a special relationship to the king of the kingdom. So we're sort of middle people here. We have a relationship to the king. He's also given us a relationship to the kingdom, the creation. And the creation doesn't have the same relationship that we have. So he even talks to us early on. He walks with us later on in the garden. There's a unique relationship that the image implies. There's a likeness that he can share with us. But second... The image of God means that we are representations of God. If we are his image, like we said already, an ancient king would would claim a land his own, build a temple. We've already seen this and then make a statue of himself. And if that's what we are, his statues, we are representing him to the rest of the world, letting them know who's in charge. We're playing that middle part, uh, bringing together the kingdom and the king and making that harmony happen. And in the other picture, chapter two, that we're priests. That's the same idea. That's what priests do. They're the connectors between the people and the God. So it's the same exact image. We're his representatives. We're playing the middle man because we're part of creation. So we're representing it. But we have a unique relationship with God. So we're representing him to the creation. We have a very elevated role on the earth. And then this naturally leads us to the third meaning of the image of God. And this comes straight from the text. To be made in the image of God means to be rulers like God. Follow it with me. Let us make man in our image. The image has a likeness after our likeness. So we share something in common with God. What is it? Well, the next part of this verse explains what that is. And let them have dominion over the fish and the birds and the livestock All the parts of creation, let them have dominion, let them have power, let them have authority, let them have kingship. These are things we've already seen God has over the creation. And he made us in his image because he wanted us to share in that power with him over the creation. To be made in the image of God is to rule the creation as God would rule it. As his representative and as a, as a creature in relation with him. This makes us, like I said at the beginning, under kings. That's our role. You want to call it priests, representatives, whatever you want to call it. Under kings works too. God is a king. 
Creation is his kingdom and we are his under kings. That is what we're seeing in the creation. So we have elevated positions. We work for the government, if you will, (laughs) the kingdom of God. That was the goal here to have dominion. Now, this is further, of course, reiterated in verse 28. We've already read it, but part of this is being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, having dominion. Um, And that actually leads us right on to knowing now that we're supposed to have dominion, this rulership. This leads us now into our commission. We know who we are now. We're creatures made in the image of God. We have a relationship. We're representations of him. And we have dominion over the creation. That's who we are. Under kings. Special roles. What we do. Why we're here. Is to have that um, identity carry itself out in a commission. We are commissioned now to do something about this. And that's what 128 reads as is a commission. He blesses them and basically sends them out. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Go. (laughs) You have my blessing. Now go. And as you go, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Now, this isn't um, a permission for us to do what we are doing very well at right now as a as a world. This isn't giving us permission to abuse the world and to uh, bring us to the threat of running out of energy resources and filling our world with carbon and all the things and, and forest slashing that we're doing and all the ways that we're, we're ripping off the earth to enrich ourselves. We're not being good under kings right now. We are being great pillagers of the creation. But originally... Uh, the have subdue it and have dominion is a commission to care for, to rule it in God's likeness as he would rule it. He's entrusted it to us to rule on his behalf. Now, what this would look like, uh, fill the earth. Well, if we're starting in Eden and if this is an enclosed garden and there are rivers that are going outward, then our commission is to start to fill the earth with other humans who are doing a good job at subduing not the good part of creation, but subduing the undeveloped part, making the garden go outward, subdue whatever's out there, that wilderness, subdue it and make the garden grow and have dominion as you go. You've been given authority to do this. In other words, we're, 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 we're making the garden grow and the, the kingdom of God expand and, We're not struggling in it. It's not like, oh, great. Weeds took over what I did. Ten years of wasted time. We have authority. And we can tell the parts of creation to come to our service and to help us. There may have been a much more intimate relationship between the human and the creation than we experience in our isolation today. You know, we are victims of uh, storm surges and other natural disasters. We're victims. We can't control these things. But maybe once upon a time, they didn't happen because we did have authority over them. Maybe the creation is rebelling against us today as we are rebelling against God. Maybe the reason we have disasters isn't why would a good God allow this? Maybe it's why would why not would a creation rebel against bad human rulers? Maybe just a thought. We had some sort of authority And this in 2 verse 15, we've already seen, but this is a little clearer picture of what we're supposed to do. He put us in the garden to work it and keep it. 
So as the garden grows outward, our job is working it and keeping it. So with our dominion and authority, we're cultivating. We're saying, hmm, what are, good, what are trees good for? Somewhere along the way, that was discovered. And gradually, different things, right? Well, they can burn, they can build houses, they can make paper. That's working it. That's finding out what it can do, knowing its potential, tapping into it, glorifying the king's creativeness through our creativeness. Keeping it is, well, if there is something outside that must be subdued. Um, There is, by the way, because a serpent slithers in later on who's clearly evil. Um, Our other role in this was to be protective in what we do. Go and make the world beautiful. Be God's rulers on it. But know that you're also protecting what God has made. We're going to see next week that one of the first downfalls was the human's inability to have dominion over the serpent. They should have kept him from the garden, but they allowed him in and they talked with him and they didn't do a good job at controlling him. He controlled them. We're going to see that next week. Um, So this is our commission Keep and work the creation. Make it grow. Make it beautiful. Have dominion. Subdue it. At least that was the way it started. We don't do a good job at this right now. There's few things that we have dominion over in life. And those few things we do, we usually call them gifts. We call them talents. Those are the things we end up seeking to do with our lives. Um... Of course, this is because of our rebellion. We've lost much of our ability to do this because we said, eh, we don't need God. We can do this on our own. But again, we'll look at that again uh, next week. But um, that was the idea. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, that was nice for Adam and Eve, but we're on the other end of this. So it was a nice historical lesson, Brandon. But what do we do about this now? Well, actually, there seems to be quite an amount of evidence that the New Testament wants us to reclaim this mission. Now, I don't mean this in an environmentally tree-hugging kind of a way. Um, But the Bible does, the New Testament does use language that seems to seriously suggest that this story of Adam and Eve is meant to be carried out in us. And here's just real quick, a couple of the hints and suggestions. And this is what I uh, let you guys conclude on your own, what this means for your life. (laughs) First of all, we see a new Adam in the new Testament. The first Adam had failed us, but we have a new Adam. We have a new beginning, a new humanity. Why Adam? Well, yes, he was the first. So it's easy to use that name, but maybe because in Jesus, our new Adam, we actually have a relaunch of Adam's original commission. Maybe we too, in association with Jesus, become a new type of Adam. We're a new humanity. And Ephesians itself makes it very clear that there is a new humanity in Jesus, that the old humanity has lived one way, but there's a new creation happening, a new work. Um, We share a new creation. As I already said, Paul says that you become a new creation when you come to Jesus. And the Bible's famous illustration for proof that you're a Christian is fruit. Fruit is not an accidental correspondence to the Garden of Eden, which would have had lots of fruit. A fruitful Christian is like a fruitful Garden of Eden. 
We share a commission as God sent them out to go and to make the world fruitful. Um, although that might have been in more of an environmental and a culture building way. Right now, Jesus sent us out in Matthew 28. Go out into the nations and make disciples. That's what we're working and keeping as we're taking his word and we're making people out of it. We're making disciples. That's our new dominion in a sense. It's using what he's given us and making something out of other people with it. Uh, Acts 1 verse 8 also echoes this and more so like Genesis. There Jesus says, when you receive power from the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses question could that maybe be hinting at reclaiming the image of god you will be my witnesses from jerusalem there's your eden to judea to samaria to the ends of the earth the same outward working fill the earth expand outward go and be fruitful and that's what the church has been doing since from our epicenter in jerusalem we have been taking the fruitfulness of the gospel and cultivating a dark dead world and making fruit and making life where we go outward so yes we share a commission as well and we also share dominion in the church of course we're still fallen beings so we don't have perfect dominion but in the church we begin to see glimpses of a reclaimed dominion this uh, word is borrowed by paul in romans 6 sin shall no longer have dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace we have been ruled by sin but in jesus we are reclaiming that rulership and he uses the word dominion for crying out loud after he talks about the new Adam and Jesus. Now, we usually refer to this as sanctification. We talk about that and say this is the process of a Christian looking more like Jesus and like God. But that's the same thing as having dominion over the things of our lives, not letting sin rule us, having that working more like the image of God. This is the same idea, their dominion, our sanctification. These are works we're working at to look more like Jesus and to let the image of God be restored in us. And so, yes, it does seem that the New Testament affirms what Genesis has taught us from the beginning, that we are made in the image of God to expand his glory to the rest of the world. Ideal indeed troubling because of our fall now but as revelation shows us at the end this comes full circle and we come back to being under kings as revelation promises that we will rule and reign with him over the earth so that's what the beginning of the bible teaches us we will see what the middle parts and the ending part teaches us in the next two weeks